Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Our guest today is Anna Whiteman, Vice President at Coefficient Capital. Coefficient Capital is a new venture capital fund that leads early growth investments in fast-moving consumer goods, typically investing in Series A and Series B rounds. So far, they've invested in Just Spices, Nom Nom, Hydrant, and Personal Care. Anna also founded Rad Ladies, a private network of female founders. Previously, Anna worked at VMG on investments including Health Warrior and Vermont Smoke and Cure, and also at Tribeca Venture Partners and Credit Suisse. It was really fun chatting with Anna, and I appreciate her sharing her insights on CPG investing. So without further ado, here's Anna. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm amazing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How's quarantine treating you? Quarantine's treating me okay. How about how about yourself? It's good. It's good. As I was saying, I um, had a birthday party uh, with my two friends that I know in this town where I'm sequestered right now, and you know, it was human interaction was my my one birthday wish. Well, I'm glad that you got some human interaction. That's uh, uh, that's it. Seems like a real treat these days, right? Uh, what what attracted you to finance, consumer, and startups? And just tell me a little bit about your path into venture capital. Totally. Um, and bear with me. This might be a little bit of a winding story. So I, yeah, I guess I went to Penn um, for undergrad. I studied. My major was called philosophy, politics, and economics. So. Um, I didn't think at the time to kind of specifically concentrate in finance, but um, was really interested in my major and kind of the behavioral economics components. I started taking courses on the side for things like consumer psychology. Um, I worked as a research assistant to professors in the marketing department at Wharton. So it was always kind of there in the back of my mind, um, wanting to get involved in finance. But yeah, I, I spent my first internship professionally uh, at the Clinton Foundation. So that gave me access to some some pretty cool big shots who had come from the world of finance and now we're running like the core initiatives at the Clinton Foundation, like Clinton Global Initiative and Health Access Initiative. So over the course of you know working at the foundation, having conversations with all of these people, their advice was always to kind of go into the private sector, learn finance, learn how a business is built, learn how it's run, um, and come back and you know apply those principles to something like the foundation one day. So. That's exactly what I did. I went to um, applied for banking internships. I landed at Credit Suisse in the financial institutions group um, and kind of quickly realized there that I did not, in fact, love covering insurance and specialty finance. But to keep myself sane during that two-year period of time, I started a trend spotting blog um, that I called SauceWalk, which was kind of like a mashup of like my own form of cool hunting product recommendations and some Billy on the street style interviews with like trendy people that I encountered on my walk to work each day. Um, so it, it kind of became clear to me over that period of time that what I wanted to do was marry the worlds of consumer with my desire to understand business. So that kind of led me to VMG, which is a fund in San Francisco, kind of one of the larger growth equity funds out there today in the consumer space. Um, so now VMG is kind of known for investments in businesses like Justin's Peanut Butter, uh, Spindrift Seltzer, Drunk Elephant was a big one that exited recently, and Sunbum. So I spent two years there learning kind of the ins and outs of growth equity and what it meant to invest and build and you know drive value creation through working alongside teams in the portfolio. Um, and I kind of had the aha moment that I could do like consumer investing for the rest of my career. So um, at the time that I was at BMG, a lot of like what I was working on and learning about was kind of the traditional retail playbook. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of the the nexus of brands like Warby Parker and Casper. Um, all those DNVBs were coming into the world, just being built and scaled online. So kind of the metrics that they were using to value themselves were entirely different than the retail heavy set of brands that I was used to working with. So kind of moved over and, and tried to understand the world of D2C a little bit better. Um, started at a tech fund in New York and worked for two more years there on just understanding more of the digital business model, um, things like retention and digital marketing. And um, these were kind of KPIs that I was learning about that I had never come across at VMG. So um, 
yeah, I kind of given my exposure to both sides of the coin on, you know, retail and the D to C side came to realize that one couldn't really exist without the other. Um, retail brands needed to be able to meet their consumers online and vice versa. And there really wasn't a fund in the market that I saw as being kind of specifically set up to properly analyze and support both of these sides. Um, so that was timely when the partners at Coefficient approached me. I think they had actually dynamically filtered on LinkedIn for somebody who had a background in traditional growth equity and technology um, investing on the consumer side. So I was like one of two names that popped up on LinkedIn and kicked off a conversation then. And that kind of lands me to where I am today. Wow, that's amazing. Going from the nonprofit foundation side to, I mean, I'm pretty surprised that insurance didn't tickle your fancy. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about Coefficient Capital, your stage and and your focus. Yeah, so Coefficient, we are a Series A and Series B fund, um, $170 million fund. Uh, we are obviously very focused in consumers. So our core categories would be food, beverage, beauty, wellness, personal care, household, and pet. So kind of those fast moving consumer goods, um, a lot of which are just kind of core consumer staples. Um, we target businesses that are anywhere between five and 20 million in annual revenues. We'll put you know five to 10 million bucks uh, to work on average in each round. Um, and then, yeah, we, we kind of are very focused on being, as I alluded to in my background, just an omni-channel fund. So we have resources in-house to help support businesses as they scale digitally, um, help them kind of proliferate across a variety of marketplaces online, um, build customer awareness and, and, you know, marketing strategies in the digital world, and then help to kind of take all of the data um, and analysis that we put together on the digital side to help inform a better, more efficient go-to-market strategy on the retail side of the world. You're focused on like digitally native vertical brands that are finally are maybe at the stage that are able to actually have an omni-channel strategy. Is that roughly correct? Or or do you also look at companies that, that are already in- In retail. I would say what we see more of, um, probably 90% of the companies that we speak to um, are scaling and have a majority of their sales online as they're looking to push into retail in a more meaningful fashion. Um, so I would say we don't specifically look for DNVBs, but um, it is helpful to kind of take the data and the backend analysis that we can put together um, to help those companies prepare for a more appropriate retail launch. Um, so I would say what we do like to over-index towards is um, companies that are also using technology in interesting ways. And to the extent that um, that technology is set up to live on shelf today, kind of the infrastructure on the retail side doesn't necessarily exist. So if you think about um, just like an example of a skincare brand that's using technology or customization um, to create kind of a personal skincare solution for you, um, that customization can't really exist at scale in retail shelves today, although I do believe that kind of the hardware and back end is being built out to support that in the future. Um, but I would say to the extent that, yeah, we're, we look for companies that do have some sort of technology advantage, most of those revenues at the outset will be coming from um, the online channels. Do you mean by technology in terms of like how it relates to a company's supply chain? Not specifically supply chain. So technology can even be so broadly defined as like a company that's cultivating a really incredible organic community through a unique social media strategy. Um, so, you know, we will often diligence really strong engagement across social channels. And that's not just like Facebook, Instagram, that's things like TikTok and, you know, a variety of the others that are that are kind of resonating with the more Gen Z's amongst us. Um, but yeah, I'd say we do like to apply technology in the sense of it being a, a defensible moat for intellectual property for um, it, it tends to drive higher retention for businesses over six to 12 months if you give the consumer a more personalized, stylized product experience. Um, but yeah, again, it, it can be so broad as just a really incredible community that drives incredible um, standard deviations outside the norm, referral and word of mouth um, 
a customer acquisition. Got it. So you can use the, the, the technology in order to build communities and really also build the brand uh, as it comes back to that. Okay. So we've heard from, you know, many seed investors on the show, you know, not a ton yet of series A investors and series and series B's investors. If you wouldn't mind walking me through a bit of your diligence process um, at, at the series A and series B and a little bit about what milestones um, on the data side that uh, since of course, uh, since you're uh, farther along, uh, there's there's more data than at the seed stage. What kind of milestones are you looking to see? Yeah, for sure. Um, so we we typically diligence all of the regular milestones that seed investors will look for. So obviously, a really strong team is incredibly important to us. Um, a high growth business, um, you know, continual customer acquisition coming from a variety of different channels. Um, all of those things are still important to us. I would say um, what we kind of optimize for as a fund is really strong um, kind of first order and second and third order unit economics. So um, we love to see very high gross margin businesses. Um, and then, you know, just on the marketing side, uh, kind of a, a higher organic than paid component of customer acquisition. Um, and to the extent possible, you know, pretty diverse um, channel acquisition. So um, not typical reliance on Facebook and Instagram for, for acquiring customers. Um, and then I would say the other kind of metric that we, we place a lot of emphasis on uh, would be just retention and replenishment. Um, so making sure that customers that are coming to you on day one, uh, a good degree of those customers are still coming to you six months later and hopefully 12 months later. Um, so, you know, a lot of categories actually lend themselves to higher retention naturally, but um, to the extent that, you know, we've, we've seen thousands of companies in each category um, that we can kind of understand what a, a benchmark for replenishment and retention is across these categories. We look for, um, you know, companies that are, are batting above their weight. No, that's that's really helpful. Thanks. I I also just wanted to, and I apologize, I'm going off a, a little bit off script here, but it reminds me a little bit of a conversation that I had with um, Jason Schumann at Primary, and how he was saying how he's right now more focused in terms of metric wise on on the actual uh, payback period versus you know CAC LTV. Wanted to know wanted to know kind of your thoughts. Totally. I think uh, it kind of depends on you know what percentage of consumers are either on subscription or not on subscription, but. Um, yeah, we definitely like to see a, a quick payback period and a pretty favorable cash conversion cycle. Um, I think like when we start to get it to like six to eight months to paying back a customer and those customers either don't have a high LTV or are not being retained at um, exceptional levels relative to kind of the market, then what you're doing is just continually paying for new customers to to fill the, the churn void. Um, so yeah, I would say we definitely would like to see first order profitability if possible. Um, and then I think that kind of gives you just the, the optionality when you move into retail where your margins are going to be diluted by a variety of kind of middlemen um, to, to have a little bit more liquidity and, and optionality on your side and selecting which retailers to go into. How are you thinking about organic versus paid growth? I, I don't think there's any standard breakdown for if a company should have, you know, 80% paid, 20% organic at the seed, and then that should fix to 50-50 by the time they're raising a Series A. Um, but I think we, we, to the point that I made about community, um, I think those kind of, the ability to drive organic growth through um, word of mouth and and a little bit more of a like smart PR strategy um, is attractive to us. Um, I think again the the channels of Facebook and Instagram being a little bit more um, uh, efficient markets at this point, you're not really paying for differentiated consumers. You're kind of just paying for eyeballs. Um, so I think we we do over index for um, high growth of organic customer acquisition. But again, you know pay to play is kind of the name of the game for consumers or for companies at this inflection point in their growth um, to to kind of get the eyeballs and top of the funnel needed to drive true conversions through the funnel. Do you have an example of a business that did a really good job just how they approached and executed growth strategy? One business that I really love and think that they've done just an exceptional job on organic customer acquisition is a company called Maud. They make sexual wellness products. So 
um, kind of not a typical company that's able to advertise on Facebook and Instagram normally, just, just given some of the restrictions of those marketplaces on AdWords. So mods had to be really creative in um, kind of growing an organic customer base through um, a channel that is typically, or I'm sorry, through a product line that's typically kind of stigmatized. So not many people are, are proud of, you know, Google searching for sexual wellness products. Um, but mods brought this really elegant solution. Um, it's just a beautiful brand. It's highly sophisticated. Um, they have a blog and an email um, newsletter that goes out every so often called The Modern, um, which is just kind of lifestyle in and around the bedroom. Um, so I think they, they've done a really good job of curating content, finding a high intent audience that, you know, they're not able to reach on traditional channels. And, um, you know, they've, they've built just a really beautiful differentiated brand in a typically kind of, um, let's say not so elegant space. And, uh, I think they've, they've managed to grow the business really exceptionally, um, using very, very kind of bootstrap marketing tactics, um, PR and, and they've just done an incredible job levering, um, you know, their, their consumer base to become true brand advocates for them. Yeah, that's really interesting how they approach organic growth. At what stage do you see digitally native brands expand to offline retail and develop an omnichannel strategy? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say somewhere between the seed and series A is when you start to dabble with retailers um, on a very kind of small level. So that's trying to find like, uh, we'll take the like food or beverage um, land as kind of the, the grounds that we'll play on here. But um, that's where you kind of go into your specialty, natural mom and pop shops, and just start to test what the retail waters are like. Um, I would say when you're kind of at the series A and series B levels where you're kind of more capitalized and have the support to kind of go into some of these larger retailers where there is a lot of pay to play, there's a lot of things like slotting fees and, you know, other, other costs that you incur that you don't traditionally hit when you're um, more of a digital brand that you kind of can have the leeway to, to expand into retail more broadly. But I would say, yeah, somewhere in the range of like without holding me to this number, four to 5 million in annual revenues um, is when obviously we start taking a, a hard look at brands that are about to, you know, make a splash in retail. And that's when, you know, we can kind of use the digital data that we've got to, you know, importantly inform a little bit more of a more efficient business model on the direct-to-consumer side and then support kind of a, an online channel diversification strategy. So that's maybe stepping outside of D to C and moving into the world of Amazon or other marketplaces. And then, you know, that kind of builds the grounds online for broader customer awareness and availability that helps support um, a more meaningful kind of go-to-market go strategy on the retail side. And I think just importantly on this point, uh, one thing that's kind of changed in the retail landscape since um, when I was back at BMG to now is um, you have a really sophisticated built out backend on Shopify and Amazon that helps kind of drill down into exactly who your customer is, um, how often they purchase it, you know, what else they're putting in their baskets um, outside of, you know, your typical brand. So all of those are data points that really help to go to a buyer in retail, call it, you know, Target or Walmart and tell that buyer, you know, this is exactly who our consumer is. This is why they're coming to us online. And I'm going to pair that with what I know about the foot traffic in your store. Um, and I'm going to show you how, you know, we're specifically prepared to convert the customers that are already walking through your doors at higher rates than what existing brands are on shelf. And so I think, you know, just that point means like you have to have at least four or 5 million in annual revenues to support that data story to then make your um, foray into retail that much more effective um, and meaningful. Got it. Thanks for those ballpark metrics. That's really helpful. I wanted to talk about COVID. Has that affected your strategy at all? We're actually not. I think we're in a really good position. Luckily, as I said, we kind of only invest in, you know, those more fast moving consumer goods that are that are staples. So um, nothing that's been, you know, particularly discretionary or um, hit hard in this environment um, have, have kind of impacted our portfolio. Um, and I would say that a lot of the trends that we're investing behind are also going to be supported through COVID. Um, and so I think, you know, things like um, 
consumers are now looking at a variety of different marketplaces and getting a little bit more educated about what the brands that they're putting in their bodies, what they're eating, drinking, um, using for skincare, um, what kind of formulations are in those products. Um, you know, so I think a lot of the, the macros that we're investing behind, which are better for you, more transparent, um, you know, better versions of, of what the existing kind of on-shelf products are for the consumer today. Um, those are being supported by a, a strengthened consumer education um, that's going on right now. But uh, yeah, so nothing's, nothing's particularly changed in our investing strategy and in the macros that, that really attract us to brands. Um, but I think there will be secondary and tertiary impacts on consumer buying behavior that we're going to have to adjust to. Um, obviously, the retail landscape is going to look meaningfully different six months from now than, than it did three weeks ago. So um, that's something that we're, we're assessing and we're taking into account um, to be able to prepare our brands uh, as well as we can for, for kind of the new normal. But um, I'd say, yeah, we're, we're kind of carrying on as business as usual and um, probably more so than previously are emphasizing profitability and, and you know, cash um, responsibility over high growth um, and, you know, spending a lot on sales and marketing. Um, but I think that's, that's kind of what we've always been focused on. So um, we're lucky to kind of have the bones in place to um, analyze and diligence businesses in a way that is, is probably coming in vogue in a lot of other funds um, as a result of this. Are you seeing now less deals? I mean, I know that now your, your interactions with, with, with entrepreneurs have to be virtual. Has that affected you, how you do diligence or, or, or how many deals you've, you've seen in, the, in this past month? Yeah, I honestly can say that Zoom and taking meetings virtually has made me far more efficient. Um, so I'm actually talking to more companies now as a result of this than, than previously. Um, yeah, and it's a great time, even if they're not quote unquote deals, um, it's a great time to check in with founders, um, have the conversation just to, to get a, a flavor for how all brands are responding to this. Um, and one thing that I've been really excited about is there's been this sense of resilience around the founders that I've been speaking to, um, confidence in their product as being something that is truly you know, a need for consumers, um, part of their everyday lives, part of their you know, food regimen, part of their workout regimens, um, and brands are more committed than ever to being kind of really in service of their consumers as opposed to just selling to their consumers. So um, I think it's it's going to present a lot of great opportunity um, for brands to uh, enhance the conversations that they're having with consumers and strengthen those relationships um, through a hard period of time. So I'm seeing more and more businesses being resilient uh, out of this and and frankly just being more efficient with my own meeting schedule so it's it's been you know quite positive on that front for me I love that I think you're the first investor I've spoken with that's actually says that they've been seeing more and more deals which is fantastic <laughs> when do you envision like a company or business that's a vertical brand to become profitable in, in terms of like the actual fundraising stages yeah I would say um, definitely most of the businesses that we see, Today, I'd say probably 25% of the businesses that we speak to have the um, have the benefit of being profitable. And kind of at that point, fundraising is not necessarily a must. It's it's kind of an option. And so then you're just really looking for the right partner. Um, but for companies that that are facing you know a meaningful amount of burn, that's obviously you know a big I wouldn't say red flag, but I think if if the burn is unsustainable and they're going to continually be dependent on fundraising going forward, um, that creates a, a little bit of a challenging dynamic for us to get involved. Um, obviously, we as a fund have to be responsible in how much capital we reserve for follow-ons into companies. And um, I would say we've, we've again, we've, we would love the magical combination of low burn and incredibly high growth, but um, more often than not, we're probably going to be uh, a little bit more favorable towards businesses that are again, building kind of really, truly sustainable business models. And with that, that comes, you know, the high gross margin profile, um, that high retention profile that I talked about, um, and really kind of just over-indexing on the organic customer acquisition side, because all of those things over time you can enhance. You can't really 
correct for those things um, past a certain point in a company's life cycle. So I think all of those metrics that point us towards um, a, a path towards ultimate profitability, uh, we definitely favor. Um, so I would say we we like high growth businesses that have the ability to support um, a, a clear path to profitability in the year or two past when we invest. Um, and so that's that's kind of what we will build our model around. And, you know, we, we kind of invest in businesses thinking, how are we going to get these businesses to 100 million in revenues over the course of our investment life cycle? So in the next three to five years. Um, and if we can't really build that model um, from the ground up ourselves, then um, it's going to get challenging for us to to continually be kind of the capital provider in that circumstance. In, in the same vein, and, and, this, and, and this question probably would have been a lot more relevant if I asked it a year ago um, as opposed to now, but do you have, do you, in your diligence, do you talk to founders about what their vision is in terms of how many stages they actually want to fundraise? Like, and are you worried at all about over fundraising? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we don't, I don't typically, I would say it's a red flag if somebody comes in and immediately their business plan is contingent on them raising another $100 million. I think if you look at you know how specifically we are concentrated on like consumer staples, exits in the landscape have been to the tune of 300 to $400 million if everything goes correctly as planned. Um, so we're not kind of going in this with the mind that you need to raise $200 million to exit for $300 million. Um, that to us just doesn't, doesn't seem like a sustainable funding cycle nor um, business cycle for, for consumer products. So um, we typically will um, hopefully, you know, the, the option that founders have when they come to coefficient is that, you know, we, we could be their last institutional capital in, um, we also have the ability to bring other funds on top of us, but um, you know we are a big enough fund that we can not only lead the Series A, but we can um, continue to support the businesses through through um, structured follow-ons. So I would say um, I I wouldn't I don't worry about over fundraising because I don't think that we invest in businesses that are um, dependent on that to to get to a point of profitability or exit. Um, but I would say we. Yeah, we, we like to just build rational three-year plans upon, you know, engaging with a company when we enter into diligence that um, get us all feeling kind of very comfortable around uh, an efficient level of burn that makes sense for the company to grow um, as it needs to in, in both retail and online, but um, without kind of spending unnecessary funds to um, acquire customers that might not be as sticky, might not fit into that, you know, profile I built around just community-driven brands that that are using technology in interesting ways to drive high retention and high repeat. Wanted to also ask a little bit, and, and we spoke to it before, but how are you thinking about the future of online advertising? I mean, it seems like growing organically is almost more important than ever when it comes to online because, because as you mentioned before, you don't have those arbitrage opportunities and, and, and the markets for uh, Facebook and Google are, are, are a lot more efficient. How are you thinking about just like online, like maybe like the future of online advertising in general? As we kind of chatted about like Facebook and, and Instagram have uh, become pretty efficient marketplaces. So um, we have pretty solid benchmarks for what CACs should be across various product categories um, on those uh, on those kind of forums. But I think um, there's definitely still, you know, arbitrage opportunities to be had if you're doing things correctly. I think like one brand that um, I love on TikTok right now is a brand called Dream Pops, um, but they've got like 50,000 TikTok followers. And um, I have to imagine that they're acquiring them at much more reasonable CACs than um, what Facebook and, and Instagram are presenting today. Um, so I think there's, there's kind of, if you can master a non-traditional um, and probably like less systematized marketplace like TikTok, um, then there's a lot of growth to be had there for, for pennies on the dollar. Um, I would say, uh, yeah, like the, something that we diligence for is just strong diversity of marketing funnels. So um, I think like podcasts are a great example of um, a funnel that will allow you to have kind of a captive and targeted audience, but you have to be very specific with exactly which 
um, providers you're working with. And so you need somebody kind of in-house to really manage that correctly. Um, I'd say like affiliate marketing is also great, but it takes, you know, time to really sort out who your top affiliates are. Um, so I think there's TikTok is where I'm most bullish right now in terms of just other online platforms that I think are being underutilized by brands. But um, I think, yeah, it, it, as much as brands can get away from Facebook and Instagram while also maintaining um, kind of just consistent top of funnel acquisition um, at pretty standard predictable CACs, um, that's that's going to own the future for, for the time being. But um, I like to see brands that are getting a little bit more creative with um, how they're diversifying marketing funnels for sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, also appreciate you shouting out podcast. The Consumer VC is certainly open for business on the advertising front. <laughs> so uh, I also wanted to, wanted to flip gears a little bit as well. I know that you founded the, the network uh, Rad Ladies. Uh, tell me a little bit about about why you created it and a bit more information about uh, Rad Ladies, that'd be great. I am super passionate about Rad Ladies. I love that you've asked about it. So I uh, kind of got it started as I had started in the tech VC world um, and I was doing sourcing for the first time and I was just mind blown at the amount of time that I was spending every day having founders come in and just like pitch in a really one-sided manner. Um, and I, like, they were the ones that were building things. Like, why were they coming in and selling themselves to me? The, the dynamic of it just felt very odd. It was, it should have been more conversational. Um, so I think like the high volume of meetings that I was sitting in on, um, I was learning so much about these businesses that was valuable, but, um, I was kind of the only one that was sitting in the center of it with access to, you know, all of these founders. And I would have a meeting on Monday um, that felt like some point came up that was relevant to share with the founder that I was talking to on Tuesday, but I didn't, you know, was it in my job spec to kind of bring these two people together? I didn't know. Um, so I just felt like there was value to be unlocked in connecting all of the various dots, um, so that a founder with, you know, one business model could learn from the mistakes or best practices of somebody in a maybe non-competitive, um, other category that was, that was building, um, and solving an interesting problem that they might've had. So um, at the same time, I was kind of bringing a ton of like female founded businesses in just by nature of um, a lot of consumer brands are founded by females. Um, and I kind of noticed a style or pattern in the way that women would pitch versus men. It was, it was like that more conversational nature that I was looking for. And um, uh, they were a little bit more vulnerable in terms of what they would typically share as like weaknesses of the business. Um, and there was just this like resonance that I would feel with these founders when I didn't, I got the sense that they didn't get the chance to talk to a ton of other female uh, investors. So um, yeah, I, I kind of put those two things together. I thought, why not connect all of these awesome females that are coming in and pitching and um, try to bring everybody together in a collaborative and low key kind of manner um, to just talk about business and see if it's remotely valuable. So the first one had like 10 women and we had like some pizza and some beer and that was like three years ago and it's grown, you know, pretty intentionally and on a referral basis since, um, into this really awesome closed network of, of women with like, we've got a dedicated Slack channel. We've got, you know, monthly meetups that we do. Um, and just the amount of support that these founders have, have provided each other. Um, and now some are direct competitors at this point, but, um, that's just, it's something that I'm really proud of and it's really incredible. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's something that I, I don't know if it's a side hustle at this point, because it takes a ton of time to continue to keep this community, you know, rich and, and um, meeting as frequently as we do, but it's really, really rewarding for me and um, kind of renews my, my purpose as a female in uh, investing. That's amazing. No, I think that's uh, really cool and innovative what you're doing. And I wanted to talk as well about what are some changes in consumer behavior that you're focused on or trends that that you're focused on? Ooh, um, yeah, I would say what I'm focused on, and this is just going to be very topical to what I'm looking at right now, but um, obviously the the shift of grocery over to e-commerce is a big one. It's kind of one of the last uh, frontiers of consumer that hasn't been as meaningfully penetrated um, online as, as retail. So um, excited that, you know, that's going to kind of create a shift in consumer behavior is going to go on as consumers through staying at home are going to 
discover more marketplaces, um, probably discover a long tail of brands that that are supported by these marketplaces that um, will give rise to some interesting kind of new discovery and and um, trial for for the food and bev uh, sector. So um, that's one thing that I'm excited about. I'm excited about. I touched on TikTok. Um, I'm very just for whatever reason bullish TikTok um, for acquiring uh, younger consumer demos. So by nature of kind of the the brands that I'm seeing doing work on TikTok, um, I am I am looking at a lot of trends that are driving um, Gen Z purchasing behavior. So um, sustainability is a big one there, right? Like consumers at a younger age are are more concerned than. Um, you know, millennials and boomers around um, aspects of sustainability and making sure that products are formulated in, in clean and backable ways. Um, so that's a big one that I'm focused on. Um, maybe on just personal interest and preference. I'm looking a ton at um, evolutions in the alcohol sector. So um, love some of the new brands that are coming to market that are bringing a greater degree of, you know, transparency and and cleaner product formulation um, to the alcohol sector. So that's a big one um, that I'm focused on. And then, um, yeah, products and services for aging populations, I would say is uh, another thesis or sector um, that I'm I'm really excited about. I think you have more boomers that are aging in place and they're more tech savvy than ever. And so they're discovering products on a long tail of of um, you know marketplaces or otherwise you know discovery engines that um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to to sell to these consumers and um, sell them products and services that will enhance you know longer lifespans. So um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited in all of those kind of core categories. Um, so maybe that's not specifically consumer behavior, but I think those are kind of demos and and places um, that these demos are discovering products that. I think are really exciting to track as they evolve. Have you changed your like purchasing preferences or um, style since you have been quarantined? And do you think that any of those will stick for post COVID? Oddly, I feel like I've actually shifted away from Amazon, which is okay. Yeah, which is I think that I don't think that's odd at all. Yeah, and I think that I've actually I think I use Instacart a lot more than than Amazon just to just to get the. Uh, kind of basics and 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 things that I, that you know on, on a weekly basis. I don't really know why. I think it's it's something that I've heard a lot, and people like Amazon faced a lot of stockouts, and they just announced recently that they're not they're putting customers for grocery on a wait list now. They're not accepting new customers. So um, I think one thing that, and I think I touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, this is going to lead to a long tail discovery of more niche and specialty marketplaces, but hopefully that, you know, brings consumers a, a new slate of brands that they weren't familiar with. And I think it'll be a, a huge customer acquisition period of time for brands. And so six months from now, um, it'll be really interesting to see what their retention patterns are for customers that are acquired in these kind of COVID quarantine cohorts um, versus, you know, previous typical buying behavior. So um, I don't think that you're you're odd for shifting off of Amazon. I think I've seen more people shift off of Amazon um, than flock to it over this period of time for sure. What are what are some shifts that that you've seen in your own consumer behavior? Oh man, I've been drinking more <laughs> for sure. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, I would say I I've spent so much less, right? Like I'm living at home, so I'm obviously not shopping for myself, but um, it's funny, my behaviors are so distinctly different from those of my family and my, my, where I'm quarantining right now. So for instance, like, it's amazing to me for breakfast. I love to have like a very healthy protein bar and a green juice. And like, it's just very, very just so, um, my dad loves pop tarts, um, and like toast with lots of private label store-bought butter and like a glass of orange juice from Minute Maid. So um, being with my family, I'm eating a lot less of the very, you know, particular niche brands. And I might be, you know, on one side of the spectrum just because I look at brands all day and I have very specific preferences. But, um, you know, I live in a household where a lot of what's being bought and consumed is is what you can find at ShopRite or Costco. Um, 
or any one of the kind of just more mainstream retailers. So it's been helpful for me to honestly just get out of my bubble a little bit and, um, you know, rediscover like having dinner with my family. And it's, it's all things that, um, you know, I would never eat over the course of a normal week, but it tastes just as good. And, um, you know, it's been also fun to kind of remind my parents and teach them a little bit about some of the things that are like informing my purchase decisions. So, um, you know, Windex versus a you know, more sustainable brand where you like buy the, the, um, container ones. Like Blue Land exactly, or something. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Without saying it, that's exactly what I was thinking about, but, um, and just getting, it's been great to kind of bounce some of the trends that we're thinking of off of my parents who are very mainstream traditional, um, consumers and, and get their reaction. Cause I think we, we can get caught in a bit of a bubble of the investing New York, LA crowd. And, um, it's been great to, to kind of, um, go back and forth with them on all this. One of my goals is to have the founder of blue land on this show. Uh, if you, if, if you happen to be listening, um, please, <laughs> we please, can, we, we are we are open for business, open for business. Make a campaign for that to happen. Some folks say in general that, you know, it's a contrarian time to be investing in consumer. I've also had folks say, why are you starting a consumer VC podcast? Because it is a contrarian time to invest in consumer. Why do you think some folks think that it's a contrarian time in consumer? And what are your kind of general thoughts or reactions towards that sentiment? I don't think it'll ever be a contrarian time to invest in consumer per se. Um, I think, you know, the, the categories that I tend to look at more closely and that we, you know, index for coefficient are all consumer staples. So they're all fast moving consumer good. There's a lot of analysis that you can apply towards, you know, understanding to the same extent that technology investors, um, you know, analyze enterprise and SaaS businesses. Like we can, bring a level of data and analysis to velocities that certain brands are turning on shelves that tell you, you know, whether or not this is going to be a long-term brand or, or it's, you know, harder for consumers to adopt. Um, so I would say if you have the right data analysis and metrics, um, it's not ever going to be a quote unquote contrarian time. Um, I think a lot of people probably say that because there was an influx of tech seed money um, into consumer businesses when consumer businesses don't have fundamentally the same metrics at all as tech businesses. So that money um, was a little bit uh, more, I guess, volatile um, when the when the kind of market recedes. And um, I think those tech companies are having a hard time right now understanding what metrics are going to make their businesses palatable to re retail, you know, post-COVID. Um, I think like not a lot of early stage seed funds necessarily diligence heavily. Um, not that they can at the point of, of kind of growth where the, they're looking at these businesses, but um, they're not looking at things like retention. Um, maybe they are looking at, you know, lifetime value and um, customer acquisition costs and, and diversity of acquisition channels. But um, I think those are Unless you're you're truly specializing in being a consumer investor, um, there are things that you might not have a deep bench of data and benchmarks for. Um, so I think you know when when you have the right data, you have the right benchmarks, you have the right kind of playbook to help um, both online and offline brand expansion. Um, then you're you're probably going to do fine investing in consumer. Um, but unless you've you've kind of made it your specialty. Um, and your your sole focus. I think it's hard to build the reps um, needed to really have huge conviction um, in a brand because, you know, a lot of people will ask me like, what differentiates one brand from another? What makes it an iconic brand? Um, and a lot of what we invest behind is not necessarily brand. It's it's business model. It's fundamentals. Um, and then a brand is a nice to have, but you know, you can you can work with an agency. You can kind of, um, make it a beautiful brand, but, um, you can't necessarily build the, the business model or kind of the community that's needed to, to really resonate with consumers, um, just by paying for that. Yeah. I think, I think that's a great point. And as well as I like that you also spoke a little bit about, which probably is something that I should be covering more on this podcast, but the difference between about selling to a consumer versus selling to a, you know, enterprise, um, where, you know, in my opinion, enterprise is a bit more predictable um, and consumer because because 
consumer behavior. Gosh, consumers are, I mean, like me, I am so fickle uh, with my choices. And so, uh, so it's just a lot harder to know when something catch, but when something catches, it could catch like wildfire. Yeah. And I would say like the, if you think about, and, and I did spend time, you know, on the tech investing side of the world, but if you think about the fundamentals of tech businesses, they're exceptionally high gross margin and tech investors get very, very uncomfortable with businesses that at the outset are probably 30 to 40% gross margin businesses. And then, you know, if there's a necessary product formulation change or um, something that that has to take effect um, on a on a mass scale and a software company, you can deploy a software update and that solves the problem. It, a retail business, you have to pull whatever product you've got off shelf. You have to make changes to the packaging and the labeling. Um, you have to enact a variety of kind of, it, it starts this chain effect of, um, you know, very costly changes that, that are not as easily deployable. So I think um, just the, ability to, to shift mindset and to understand that um, the consumer build is going to be that much more kind of slow and laborious. And um, there is a, a playbook to it, um, but it, it is going to take a lot, probably more capital than a tech business um, to kind of enact changes throughout the life cycle of the product and not necessarily just through customer acquisition. Um, that is what kind of makes being a consumer investor very um, specialized and I think, you know, sets the, the good apart from the, the less good. <laughs> All really good points. What's one company that's maybe on your anti-portfolio? Yeah. Um, I would say one business that I love, 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 uh, is called Andy swim. Um, and I, the kind of the, the typical, um, response to a swimwear brand is that it's highly seasonal. Um, you're not going to, you're going to have, you know, peaks and troughs in the winter. You're not going to sell anything. Um, can't really build out a retention model. It's kind of a high consideration purchase because the suits themselves for, for one is a hundred bucks. So you're not going to be coming back buying that on a, on a frequently recurring basis. Um, I think that business is just, it's, it's one where, the founder is so exceptionally strong and um, kind of lean uh, business model and and just kind of growth oriented um, in an efficient manner. Um, I think she ended up, you know, raising money from her um, manufacturer, which not only you know created a, a really favorable you know production cycle, but also kind of gave her a lot of control over the supply chain um, and, you know, enhanced gross margins. And, um, you know, she's been incredibly savvy about how she keeps the business from becoming seasonal. So opening up a market in Australia. So if, you know, the U.S. is in the middle of winter and then she's still selling swimsuits somewhere. Um, I think that's a business that um, I saw at the seed and, and I've stayed exceptionally close to the founder. And so um, can only speak so highly about what she's built. And she actually has a podcast as well called just keep swimming. So, um, check that out. But, um, I would say that's a, that's a business. I wouldn't call it necessarily an anti-portfolio, but, um, it's one where I had, you know, a lot of conviction and the overarching narrative was that it's tough to invest in, in highly seasonal businesses like hers. And, um, she's just knocked it out of the park with the business that she's built. Yeah, I really liked hearing your conviction in the founder and the company, but also the reason why uh, eventually it was a pass, given the seasonality of swimwear. Uh, so what is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Personally, so I still read a lot of philosophy. Um, so I really like, uh, as a quick read, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Um, and then kind of on the wonkier side, one book that has really informed, you know, my philosophy on on how I work and live my life is A Theory of Justice by John Rawls. Um, so that's uh, one that I encourage people to check out. And then professionally, I always just thought that book that Tim Geithner wrote right after the 08 crisis called Stress Test was really fascinating and speaks to just the elegance and, and resilience of like American capital markets. And um, we're really lucky to be in an economy that is, you know, as strong and as revered globally as it is and, um, you know, gives us the ability to do the work that we do every day. 
That's great. Thanks for sharing. Both both sound really interesting. Uh, theory of justice and stress tests for their own own different ways. And uh, uh, so, what's your what's your most recent investment, and what makes you excited about it? Uh, my most recent investment, personally, uh, is a business called Electra. Um, they make kind of well. Currently, it's it's menopause content um, for aging women. But I think. What makes me excited about it? A, I think the founder is truly exceptional and and is really focused right now on developing a really strong um, bespoke community and support system for women that are experiencing menopause. And um, what I think is really exciting is that the market for educational content for this particular topic does not exist in a sophisticated manner today. And um, when you look at kind of the the age of women going through menopause today they're technically like they're they're very you know digitally adept and are reading things on instagram and reading things on you know all of their favorite blogs and um so they're they're exposed to um the news cycles around menopause and they're you know using telehealth providers so um i think there's there's a huge opportunity to um tap into this consumer that's historically been so underserved and um, provide them with really uh, enriched content, and um, you know, ultimately, you can you can productize that and create a recurring cash flow business model. But um, for now, I think it's it's just really exciting to watch the founder Alessandra build um, this really electric community around um, around this this group of um, consumers that have a high willingness to spend and a high willingness to learn and a high willingness to engage. Um, but have not really had a product that's uh, spoken to them meaningfully quite yet. No, that's great. I mean, that sounds like a really interesting product. What's one piece of advice that you have for B2C founders? Say my piece of advice is bold marketing and non-standardized channels. Uh, So I'll go back to the Dream Pops example, but uh, he is absolutely crushing LinkedIn and uh, and TikTok, and I think those are um, creating brand awareness and and creating eyeballs around his particular product that uh, a lot of competitors in the space uh, have not utilized up to this point. And um, I think just just being able to be bold and be really trial and error with channels that other brands are a little bit more hesitant to uh, experiment with. It might not be very cost effective at first, but if you can become the master of one of those domains, then um, you know you have a pretty big arbitrage opportunity and some very eager eyeballs that await. Yeah, I love it how you brought back. Yeah, I love it how you brought it back to distribution and thinking about what your actual unique distribution strategy is. Well, Anna, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and I really appreciate the conversation. Totally. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, and I hope it was somewhat helpful. And there you have it. It was a blast chatting with Anna, and I really appreciate her coming on the show and talking about all things retail, DNVBs, and omnichannel strategy. You can follow Anna on Twitter at AnnaWhiteman2. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, That would be simply terrific. If you're a founder and work on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.